0: Welcome to the Exponential View podcast. I'm Azim Azhar, the curator of Exponential View. In our next podcast, we join Dr. Kate Devlin, who is researching love robots and how and when we might start living intimate relationships with such machines. This event is a recording of an Exponential View dinner held in London in February 2017. Before we get to the podcast, can I remind you to sign up to our Twitter and Insta feeds. You can find us on @ExponentialView. And please take a moment to share this podcast with a few of your friends. Now, over to Kate. Hello.
1: Um, Thank you very much for having me here. I'm an academic, so I love talking about my academic research, and we'll talk about it all night. Um, Unfortunately, I'm one of those academics where my research sort of has broader appeal, I think. Uh, it has the word sex in it, it has the word robots in it. So that's generally a good start. So, um, I actually, uh, so I, I'm actually, i a senior lecturer at Goldsmiths, University of London. I actually started life as an archaeologist. My undergraduate degree is in archaeology. I worked as that in the field, literally, for a while. And pardon the pun, there is no future in archaeology if you want to get ahead in your career. So you have to specialise. Mm-hmm. I know, right? <laughs> um, so you have to specialise. And so I decided that the you know, computers were a good way to go. Um, And so I went back to university, did a master's and a PhD in computer science. I work in uh, the area of HCI, which is human computer interaction, and also AI, artificial intelligence. I'm very interested, and part of that comes from the archaeological background of how people react and adapt to technology over time. So I'm particularly interested in in technologies that um, arise or maybe are disruptive. And how, what the vision is when those appear, and how people actually go forward with those, and what the actual social implications are, because there's a lot of fear around changes in technology. Back in December, we hosted the second International Love and Sex with Robots Congress um, <laughs> uh, at Goldsmiths, and um, two days before that, we ran a sex tech hackathon. So, sex technology is something I will talk about, but essentially, we got together about 50 people from lots of different areas, um, designers, developers, psychologists, artists, brought them all together into a church, but it was a, a deconsecrated <laughs> church. Um, and we brought them together into this, this environment and we got them to explore and prototype new forms of sex technology. And the results were amazing. We, well, we had 14 different products and they, I really would not have anticipated any of them. And they really pushed the boundaries, software, hardware, lots of different things talk about those in a bit so I want to talk tonight a little bit about sex robots which um, is a very evocative sort of title but actually it's not <laughs> it's not as crazy and out there as you might think okay so our idea in our head when you when you say yeah <laughs> this is the coverage we had of our, con- our conference so um, the top when we sent out a press release and we said, we're going to have a conference, an academic conference, with peer-reviewed papers about intimate technologies. And uh, the Express came up with a festival of sex robots. It, is not, it was not a festival, OK? I really, not a festival. It's coming to London after being banned in Malaysia for being too extreme. It was banned in Malaysia. One of the co-chairs is, is works in Malaysia. Malaysia's a very um, conservative. uh, culture so it's not surprising that it was banned in Malaysia Um, the other co-chairs were told they would be arrested if they went ahead with it so they brought it to London Uh, whereupon another London university absolutely refused to host it goldsmiths being goldsmiths we like a bit of that so um, uh, I said to senior management can I hold a conference on sex robots and they (gasps) went yeah of course So, so it went ahead so um, these, these three headlines are some extracts from the academic papers that we talked about. So, end of sex, scarily real sex robots to replace women, as men can't tell the difference. I'm sorry to disappoint you, men can tell the difference, women can tell the difference, we're nowhere near that yet. I will expand on that. But I particularly liked a highly respected British university. Um, so there we are, lowering the tone. Something I'm going to talk about is um, this headline, which doesn't quite represent what the actual facts are, but it's not too bad. Sex robots could reveal your deepest perversions to complete strangers. This was from a keynote I gave at the conference talking about data and data sharing, and I will touch on that in a bit. And Gizmodo went all out with our headlines. This is putting the sin in singularity. (laughs) Sex robots may literally fuck us to death. Um, please don't worry, it's not going to happen, at least not anytime soon. Okay, why am I interested? What got me interested in this? I was in a pub and um, it was post conference. I was at a conference called EU Cognition. It's a, a European um, funded uh, network of people studying cognitive systems all over Europe. Um, and we had a, an annual conference and we went to the pub and we were talking about the ways in which AI reflects real life. And some of us said, well, you know, it doesn't reflect certain aspects. It doesn't reflect sex. And when you're trying to... One of the goals of AI is, can we make an artificial human? It's not, it's not the goal, it's just a goal, right? Not a, very, not a very realistic goal. But um, if we think about the effect of, of all the things that are going on in our brain, all the, types of, all the, all the cognitive processes that are going on, all the perception, When you throw sex into the mix, it gets very interesting because there are hormones flooding the brain, all these chemicals, these neurotransmitters, you're getting serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin. It affects our cognition. It puts us into a particular state. It's very different from our normal operating state. Now, this maps very nicely onto artificial intelligence because um, traditionally, in good old-fashioned AI, as they call it, is the idea that um, AI, (coughs) these, these agents, have some kind of fundamental goal, some kind of motivation. And if we think about sex as a, a driver of that motivation, that maps on really nicely, um, because the, the idea of each agent is that they have to reproduce, get energy, reproduce, uh, and regenerate into the next generation. So that that's quite an AI thing to think about. Now, there's a new branch of AI, known as an activism, and that says that the things, it comes from ecological um, psychology, and it says that, that We interpret the world through our bodily interaction with it. So our physical space in the world, our physical interactions, drive how we understand the world. And in this way, sex is a a fundamental component of, of sociality, because it's how we engage with each other. And sociality is a fundamental component of cognition, because this is all going on, we're exploring the world, we're exploring our physical place in it. So I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. What if we built that into an AI system? What if we wanted to try and create a very human-like system? We can't neglect something like sex. We can go ahead and look at other things, which I will this evening, about um, not even considering this in terms of integrating it into artificial intelligence. Um, But that piqued my interest enough to go and explore the other areas around this. We already have robots all around us. These are just a few examples. Um, Robot assisted surgery, uh, which has been shown in in trials to be more effective than human surgeons in terms of um, incisions and stitching and all that kind of thing. They're currently controlled um, by a human operator, but they can be programmed to do certain things on their own. Much less impressive, (laughs) the robot (laughs) vacuum cleaner. Um, but it's also quite impressive Um, so you can send off your robot vacuum cleaner and it will go around and you know provided you don't have any stairs to confuse it um, it will it will clean up your house for you. Robots in the military that are used either to deliver weapons or dismantle weapons Um, that's a whole other ethical kettle of fish that I'm not going to go into this evening but just they, they exist there too and then we have the category of companion robots and these already exist, and things like Alexa, Cortana, Siri—they all fall under that. They're just those things aren't embodied. These are the kind of embodied versions. This is Pepper, um, a robot created by SoftBank, and it reacts emotionally to your interactions. So it's it's seen as being sort of kind of a confident and a friend. So we already have people that are interacting with physical-formed robots, and in this particular instance one that looks human. Now, they don't have to look human, it's just that that's one of the more natural ways for us to interact with them. Okay, so, so in more detail with the companion robots. Up here, this is a telepresence machine. It's essentially Skype on wheels. It goes around hospital beds and a consultant can talk to a patient remotely. So, not too much independence there, because a robot merely automates uh, a process, right? It's not. We don't yet have robots that can think independently. We don't have that. They don't have um, any sentience, any consciousness. They can carry out tasks that we've pre-programmed and sometimes they can learn from those tasks in, in, in things like machine learning. They can use statistical analysis, they can use previous information and they can perform differently and react differently when new situations arise. But there is still not a notion of consciousness in these machines. This is Robear. Robear is a nursing robot, a prototype nursing robot who can lift and carry people. And quite frankly, Robear terrifies me. Um, so he looks all cuddly and friendly, but like a big, giant, hard-shell teddy bear, um, and he can lift and carry you. But it's it just—you can see the dystopian potential in here. Um, it's quite worrying. And um, this is Paro. Now, Paro is a cuddly sea cub. And Paro is wonderful. And he's been used in... and oh, I'm already gendering him. I'm calling him he. Um, Paro has been used in nursing homes um, like a pet. Uh, it's therapeutic robot. And people can cuddle him and stroke him. And he makes it all... Oh, noises, and he's really sweet. Um, And look, you charge him by putting a little dummy in his mouth. I mean, it's unbelievably cute. Um, Even the the most hard-hearted cynic, when you meet a paro, you kind of melt a little bit. He's very, very lovely. Now, sex technology. (laughs) Okay, so um, how did these robots fit into sex technology? Well, um, there were all these talk of sex robots, and I'll get to what's actually in existence in a minute, but... A related strand, and I would say the umbrella for all of this is the idea of sex technology. Now, this is a massive market. This is a $30 billion market worldwide. Okay, And um, we're moving into an era where we're going away from very traditional, just basically plastic versions of genitals into these more luxe-designed um, sex toys. So the top one is Mystery Vibes Crescendo, which is this malleable vibrator that can be used by men or women, and you can shape it into the ways you want it. It comes beautifully packaged. It's, it's really, really lovely. It's almost artistic. And there are sex toys that you can buy nowadays where you look at them and think, is this an ornament or is this something that I take to bed? I mean, it's, they are really so beautifully designed. So sex technology encompasses the hardware, which is traditional sex toys, uh, software like um, perhaps hookup apps. This is an app called Field. It allows you to meet other people for threesomes and more multiples, if you want. Um, so it's a, a sort of a discrete hookup app. Then we have VR porn, right? So VR porn, virtual reality, currently very big business. Virtual reality has made its comeback. I did, not for, I did not forecast that. I saw virtual reality first time around and went, that's never going to work. Um, and, and now it does. We've got the technology to make it smaller, easier to wear. And of course, what's, what's the popular thing to do with it? Porn. So um, actually, I, I would quite happily make a prediction, although I made the wrong prediction initially. i got to make a prediction that um, the money in VR is not going to go with gaming. The money is going to be in porn and porn content and we know just how much money the porn industry has. Um, the problem is they're doing it in a very cliched, stereotypical, stereotypical porn way and they're not pushing the development into new areas that virtual reality could actually enhance like body swapping, like um, removing physical limitations. There are really cool things you can do with VR that they're not even thinking about. Um, so it's very interesting. Okay, so on the sex robots. right? These are the sex robots that are in existence today. This one is Roxy, triple X, uh, Roxy Tree Companion. Roxy is a prototype sex robot that gets wheeled out at different trade shows around the world. Uh, a few of us have tried to go onto the site and buy one. I mean, I wasn't actually going to buy one, but I wanted to see what the process was. Uh, my money doesn't cover buying sex robots, unfortunately. Um, well, we went on, but you can't actually get very far in the buying process. I think she really is a prototype, but she is um, Basically, a mechanized sex doll that that has a voice, and um, not a particularly great voice at that, so it sounds a bit grim. Um, but again, you see this sort of trope of um, very sexualized, hyper-sexualized female seductive sex robot. Now, this goes way back this is not a new thing this goes back to the ancient greeks they wrote this first um wouldn't you know and they um there are myths and legends there are um pygmalion is one of the examples it's a greek myth told at roman times where the sculptor pygmalion carved a beautiful woman out of ivory he wasn't happy with the the women around him he thought they were all a bit rubbish so he carved himself a beautiful pure woman and he caressed it cuddled it and kissed it until the gods. Made it come to life, and then that was his lover. So we see this going way, way back, and throughout the ages, people have been creating these artificial humans in order to engage and interact with them. And so there's nothing new here. Um, so in this case, it's like an extension of the companion robots, um, but in a particularly tacky form. Um, well, that's my opinion, obviously. But other people. May like this. Um, so this is um, the one that probably most people have heard of, which is Real Doll. Real Doll is um, a creation. It's um, a product from Abyss Creations, um, which is a family-run company, interestingly, um, in the U.S. And they make these silicone dolls with articulated skeletons, and you can order your specific doll um, to have particular type of skin color, of hair, of face, of genitals you get to choose and pick and, and, and get your version. Now they've been saying for quite a while they're gonna put AI into these real dolls. Um, and apparently this is being rolled out in April this year, April 2017, Matt McMullen, the CEO, has said that there will be um, what they call Harmony AI, which is their personality that they're putting into these dolls. Um, so, There is a market for these, people are buying these. To get an AI version, you're talking upwards of $10,000. But people are buying them, and they don't market them explicitly for sex. They market them as love dolls, companion dolls. So that's sex tech and sex robots. Sex tech is um, most well known are all the different types of sex toys you can get, and it covers all aspects. And I think it includes sex robots. But at the moment, sex robots are these very cliched female forms. I don't think it needs to be like that I think we should see it as an extension of sex technology that doesn't go into the humanoid form necessarily it may do but I think we might do something else with that so the sex robot what makes it different from a, just a mannequin that moves I would say a sex robot the the thing that makes it um, a sex robot is responsiveness and artificial intelligence and the idea that is, is sometime in the future it may become sentient or conscious or self-aware now that's a whole other argument because half the ai AI community will tell you that's never going to happen and the other half will say well it will happen and i will sit in the middle and say it might happen but it might not be human consciousness so that's hedging my bets anyway so So i want to talk a little about the um the implications of these sex robots both near future and long term. And near future is the one that interests me because although we think, well that's not part of our lives now, it's actually much more part of our lives, this intimate relationship with technology than we might like to think. So abyss creations, clear, and this is quite scary, when it arrives, it arrives in a box with face separate from the head, okay, this is slightly worrying, it's a bit like unpacking a coffin, all right, and it's a bit, which is very interesting because there is this thing called the uncanny valley, and the uncanny valley says that for every human looking robot, or every human looking representation, the bit before it looks properly human is just creepy and repulsive. And uh, you can see that here, right? This is not convincingly human and therefore we're quite scared of it. I'm particularly scared when the face is off. Um, so w- we know that this is, this is a, a psychological phenomenon that means we do not accept things that look nearly human but aren't human. And that's kind of hardwired into the way we think. But the, the, the company that makes these say that there are therapeutic values to this, and I find that really interesting. So they say it's been purchased by a nursing association prostate cancer survivors, burn victims for therapeutic treatment and that interestingly parents buy them for use by their socially excluded grown up children. So the idea here is to provide some kind of therapeutic value to people who cannot necessarily go out into the world and form intimate relationships in an easy manner. And actually that has got huge implications for, for human relationships because there are large sectors of society who are not able to form those relationships who are not able to have sex in a in a more normative way and why shouldn't we be giving people the opportunity to do that we know that there are people perhaps people with disabilities who rely on <laughs> sexual surrogates um, who are people trained to come in to have sex with them you know why can't they um, but that's a, that's a service and to have to be to use part of that service That's difficult. It's not a a one-to-one relationship. Why can't they be offered a one-to-one relationship? And I think that health-wise, there are really interesting benefits here. Now, sex tech, there are sex toys that are made specifically with health benefits in mind. There's a company called Hot Octopus. They make what's known as the first guy braider. And it's essentially a sex toy for men that was designed for people with spinal cord injuries. And who were paralysed, and this sex toy allows them um, to masturbate without actually having to do any movement at all. So they get sexual pleasure without being because they are and they're physically limited. So you know this is this is you know why why do we not use these opportunities? Why should people be denied the opportunity to pleasure because they are limited in some capacity, physically or perhaps socially? Now one of the other. Um, ideas. Well, I mean, there's the straightforward you know, sex toys can bring pleasure. We know that sex is, um, it, it's, it's, it's markedly good for our well-being. It's a raft of well-being measures associated with sex. It's a very positive, um, it's very positive feedback uh, physically and mentally in having sex. So why aren't we talking more openly about the benefits that sex technology can bring? Um, during the conference, I made a comment about sex toys in old people's homes. And I stand by it, actually. Because when we put old people into nursing homes, we completely infantilize them. And I've watched it happen to um, my grandparents' generation. They have been you know, in long-term married relationships all their lives. They get put in a nursing home, and they're treated like children. These are adults who have been through the world. They may or may not have some kind of um, cognitive impairment like dementia. But these are, are people that you are then treating like children when they are grown adults. And you're taking away access to things that they would normally have, like the opportunity to have relationships. And so the Daily Mail said, expert says all nursing homes should have sex toys. I did not quite say that. However, I stand by it and thinking, why aren't we doing that? Why, why isn't there that opportunity? I'm not saying we have to force it on people. That would be weird. Okay. Uh, enhancing well-being. As I was just going to say, about. Um, I think that's a, a, a really interesting thing. So... Can you enhance your well-being by being intimate with something? And we are already intimate with technology. So I have a very strong bond with my smartphone. Um, It is the last thing I look at at night. It is the first thing I look at in the morning. Um, I admit it. I am guilty. It's my extended memory. I don't have to rely on my own memory very much anymore because everything I need is on my phone. Um, I also am very private about it. I don't want anyone else getting hold and using my phone. We have all got technology that we are private about. Uh, whether that's because we, we feel possessive, or it's because of the content that's on that, that's up to you. But you know the, that intimacy is there. We form intimate relationships with technology. There are people who love their cars. There oops. There are people. You know there are children who love who love their soft toys, right? Not real, but they still form a bond with them. There are people who own cats. I find this really weird. You own a cat, it doesn't do anything. I'm not a cat person, it doesn't do anything, it just turns up for food and then it rejects you and yet you still love it. Very strange. Get a dog. Anyway. Um so attachment. Attachment is a very, very strong thing, and we get attached to things. This is um a photo of the Sony Eyebo dog um, that was around, you know, about 10 years ago. And it was a little robotic dog that you could train. And Sony stopped supporting it and stopped making it. And so all these people who loved that robot dog could no longer um, could no longer upgrade it, could no longer maintain it. And so these, these dogs started literally, not literally, but they started dying. We had these dying Aibo dogs. And so in Japan, they have funeral services for the last of these dogs. They, they take them to temples and the dogs get blessed. This is the end of the dog's life cycle. And so people are very, very attached to them. So um, David Levy is one of the finders of this field. And he wrote a book in 2007 called Love and Sex with Robots, which is where our conference got its title. David was one of the co-chairs there. And I really admire David's work because he got it out there in the open. I don't agree with him on time scales. I don't agree with all his stuff on where things will go. But he's got some great ideas. But he's also got this really utopian vision. That it's going to be purely enhancing. So he says many who would otherwise have become social misfits, social outcasts, or even worse, uh, will instead be better balanced human beings. The world will be a much happier place because all those people who are now miserable will suddenly have someone. And I think that will be a terrific service to mankind. Note the mankind. Yes. I'm going to get onto gender technology <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> But you know, go mankind. Um, Okay, so I want to talk about the negative, and gender is going to come in here as well. So, negative. Okay, my big bugbear at the moment is data. So, um, anything we sign up to at the moment, be it Fitbits, be it apps, be it smart TVs, we take the terms and conditions and we do not look at what those terms and conditions are. I know very few people who actually read through the terms and conditions. I'm also guilty of this. Okay? So we sign up because we want to use something and we accept that that's the price we have to pay. And there are, there are pros and cons to this. It can be useful for companies to get feedback from the user in order to improve their service or to improve their algorithms that drive their product. Absolutely fine, that's, you, you can't dispute that. Definitely you can get a better service if you have feedback from the customer, from the end user. The problem is, where's that data going, what's being stored, who's storing it, where's it going to end up. So this is an example um, of a smart sex toy called the WeVibe. And this past year, WeVibe is a a smart vibrator you control. uh, You can control it via phone, I think. But people signed up to this, and they clicked the terms and conditions. And what the users didn't know that wasn't made explicit, if you pardon the pun, um is that it wasn't just collecting things like who was the user it was collecting things like how often it was used um how you know how frequently on what time and what date and what temperature it was okay so that's really really intimate data it was collecting vaginal temperature um and they said we need that to feed back into our product Uh, and everyone else said I don't think you do Um, and so it's gone to court it's um, there's currently a lawsuit in Chicago uh, where a user has filed against WeVibe because they did not make it clear where the data was going. Now data is a big problem because um, and God help my students they get this they get get in-depth lectures about this but we are happy to sign away data and it's fine if we know we, we might know where it's going now. We might think, that's fine. Our data is being stored by this company. It's really, really safe. Problem is, it might be really safe now. What's happening further down the line? First of all, it could be leaked. Someone can leave a laptop on a train. <laughs> like that it happened. Oh, wait. Um, it could be that there, it's hacked in some way. It could be that there's a flaw because you know, security engineering is not perfect. There are lots of <coughs> reasons why data where it is stored now, your physical access, lots of things, data can be, data can be breached. What happens long term? What happens if the company goes bust? Right, who then gets the data? Is it sold on? I mean, who would sell on data? Well, think about um, perhaps care.data, the NHS data, that the government was very interested in selling on and they said it would be anonymised, but you could very easily de-anonymise it and that got dropped after a lot of argument um people were not happy about that even worse what happens if the data is protected and in place and say there is some kind of governmental regime change where maybe some kind of proto-fascist tyrant um (laughs) would stop people at airports and make them check their social media (laughs) i mean (laughs) What a dystopian future. But <laughs> these, these things can happen. And so people who are um, in, engaging in sex tech might some, suddenly find that that the information that they were uploading, perhaps they've up- uploaded information about their sexuality or their sexual preferences, and they suddenly find that those sexual that sexuality or those sexual preferences have fallen out of favor with the government and suddenly that's data that can be used against them. So this is really, I'm absolutely banging on about this because to me it's the most important thing to look at in terms of sex tech nowadays is about, is around data. And we don't have a decent policy in place, and we need it, and we need a lot more rigour on it. Because, um, and it's, there's a lot of legislation and, and the law does not keep up with technology, and this is a massive problem. So okay, okay uh, gender. <laughs> Technology is gendered. There's no such thing as neutral technology. Um, AI has a self-confessed sea of dudes problem in that the people making AI and making technology are white men. And the problem is, well, <laughs> the problem is manifold. Um, one of the problems is that that's been reflected in the technology that is produced. For example, Cortana and Siri and Alexa all were released with female voices because we like giving women orders um there are lots of examples like this i could go on all night about the kind of crap that i've been up against as a woman working in tech for the past 16 years but essentially the it gen- and, it, and it's not a conscious decision a lot of the time it's it's just that's the way it happens things like a pacemaker that was designed for a male body women didn't get it for another 20 years seat belts in cars that were designed for a larger meal frame smartphones Getting bigger and bigger, so you can't fit them in a tiny hat if <laughs> you're Trump. <laughs> um, and, and they go in pockets, do they? I have no pockets in my dress. But all these sort of things, very, very subtle things that you wouldn't think, just separate from a, a raging tide of misogyny that happens in tech. Um, the actual fact, and it does, <laughs> the actual fact that the products being produced are a product of the people producing them. That's problematic. And we see that in the sexual worlds because we are seeing hypersexualized, sci-fi-like, seductive figures. And we see it in lots of stories. We see it in Metropolis. We see it in Ex Machina. Uh, we see it in in all the portrayals. Every, uh, most of the stories in the news that came out around our conference depicted a very sexy, seductive female um, robot, humanoid robot. Um, because that's what we think of when we think about sex robots. And I think, why are we thinking that? Why are we even thinking human? We've got sex toys that take different forms. They don't all look like genitals anymore, because they're really interesting, designery, abstract things. Why are we going down the route of looking at a humanoid sex robot? We might look at something that's cuddly, e-textiles that respond, and lots of different things. And our sex tech hackathon showed that you can really think outside the box this. Okay, the distant future, right. Um, So there there are plenty of things in the near future to think about. I'm particularly interested in the data and the health aspect, but in the distant future, what happens if we get these machines that are conscious and sentient? Because that leads to new problems, okay? So this is, I don't know if anyone's seen humans? Yes. It's an absolutely brilliant show because it really gets across very nicely some of the ethical dilemmas around AI. This robot, this synth, as they're (coughs) called, is Vera. Vera is a very strict carer robot. She's basically the NHS robot. Um, and William Hurt's character does not like Vera. He likes his old robot who's falling apart. And he's very attached. We see this attachment. We see an attachment so much so that today, in, you know, in the world, we're seeing soldiers having funerals for bomb disposal robots. That actually happens. And, and we see this sort of attachment reflected in humans where um, he doesn't want to, to part with his old robot. He's formed a bond with it, and he gets Vera. Now, what interests me is that there are tiers of technology, and we see this with any technology that comes out. You have a top-of-the-range smartphone. You have a bit of a crap smartphone, and it depends on how much you can pay. You have an NHS Vera, or you have a private Vera. Private Vera, much nicer. Much nicer to you. Probably very good-looking. But no, that's the regulation Vera. And then you have um, the other issue that humans really nicely brings out is about consent and about programming. And this is Niska, who is a sex worker robot. And she's in a brothel with lots of other um, sex worker robots, but they're all programmed, well, she's programmed as well, to, to, to provide that service, happily, content. But she doesn't, she breaks her programming, she becomes more aware, and she decides that that's not something she wants to do, and she is put in a dilemma where she's asked to do things that are abhorrent to her, in this case, it's, uh, uh, there's um, pedophilic um, inferences, which is a, a big issue. What if someone makes a child robot? They could do that now. Well, actually, legally, they can't, they will be stopped, but it's always there. So um, there are issues around that as well. So you know, at what point, if a machine becomes sentient, do we need to worry? We don't know if it will have any consciousness that's anywhere approaching human, but nonetheless, would we, you know, would we necessarily treat an animal that way? What if it has that level of intelligence? What if it's far beyond us? We don't know. Tables could turn. Okay. I'm nearly finished. Okay. So um, I like this cartoon <laughs> because it gives a bit of free will to the robot. And I kind of think, you know, first of all, it's saying, should, should a robot get to decide what it wants to do? But also, interestingly, we... They sent, this idea of sentience is a very, very long way away. So please don't panic when the robots are going to take over. They're not taking over for a very long time. Um, and you can tell Stephen Hawking I said that. Um, but the, So what interests me is, do they have to respond to us off their own free will in order, st- order for us to form attachments? Because the whole idea around human-computer interaction, and to an extent AI, is that if a, if a computer or a machine seems responsive to us, it seems like a natural interaction, then we're accepting and we like that. And it may be enough that we don't need the sentience, that we can get away with it just being something that seems to want us, and perhaps that's okay. And I'm sort of hopeful that we can reach a stage, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious but I'm optimistic, that we can look at sex robots as an extension of sex technology in general, that we can use it for therapeutic purposes, and that it doesn't have to go down this ridiculously stereotyped, hypersexual, seductive, woman-like view. I think we can do better than that. And I think we need to get in early now. Now, the problem is, first of all, it took me two years to convince academia that this is worth talking about. Now I've got to try and convince the funders. That's even harder. Um, but we need to do research into this. Research is needed. We're at the infancy, and we are poised to look really carefully at this and decide where the technology should go. Thank you.
0: It is clearly a set of quite important emerging issues. So before we dive into the sex questions, the piece that I'm very interested in is this question that you you, you raise about how we ascribe personality and emotional value to to objects in almost any context because we're starting to see that uh, throughout uh, throughout as we bring more objects into our, our world that have some modicum of, of of intelligence so can you tell us a little bit about what the issues around um i guess it's anthropomorphizing it is anthropomorphism, these things yeah
1: yes. um it's, it's pretty common um, it's been done this, it's it's not a new thing that we um, give human tendencies to anything that looks vaguely human-like. It goes right back. Advertising, for example, you know, you make a Ribena berry. Um, that's anthropomorphism at its finest. We know that it's more powerful when there is responsiveness. So it's something called the Tamagotchi effect from those little Tamagotchi pets you used to have, the virtual pets you had to keep alive by exercising. Never exercising
0: the pets rather than yourself a bit of both but you just yeah. let them all die yeah.
1: uh, I think Pokemon Go is kind of not, not dissimilar to that um, so this effect is it, it shows that the more um, the more responsive something is and the more natural the interaction is the stronger the effect is so that we start ascribing very um, human attributes to technology that can't think for itself um, an example might be actually a very good example is my parents with their sat nav so my parents got a sat nav they discovered that it completely changed the dynamic of their relationships because on long car journeys instead of arguing with each other they argued with the satnav woman <laughs> um, and and they started you know shouting at her if, if, you know getting angry with her and you see people doing this with with other digital assistants like um alexa with chatbots, even chatbots that people don't realize, sometimes they're talking to chatbots on e-commerce sites. I mean, sometimes they're incredibly convincing. Sometimes they are humans and you just treat them as chatbots. But you get this thing saying, so, you know, would you like to chat to someone as a digital assistant? And nine out of no, no, 10 times, it will actually be it will be AI. And people flirt with the, the chatbots, and they ask them yeah. out for drinks, and they, well, they get a bit suggestive.
0: So, so let me give, give you a great example of, of, of that, uh, which is x.ai. I, how many people here are on x.ai for calendaring? Yeah, we're all kind of that early adopter group who we'll have crappy technology in our attics because we bought it too early. So, so uh, you know, x is a calendaring app called Amy, um, Amy. Ingram A. I I, the first version, and they called it Andrew. They created an Andrew Ingram because it was really annoying for people called Amy who were using it uh, to, uh, to, to be, be part of that. And one of the behaviors I observed, and I'd be interested in, in your perspective on, on this, was people spending time to engage politely with Amy because they thought it was a human. And there was a moment where I felt when I was seeing really busy mentors who I respected and I was just pleased to get 15 minutes of their time every year, writing a paragraph or two explaining their schedule (laughs) to this bot. And I felt there was some kind of uh, dissonance because Amy was a bot, a bunch of Perl scripts and if-then statements probably.
1: Yeah, uh, and and yet we do it. It's quite a market effect.
0: What are the issues that get raised when the, the person on the other side of the bot doesn't necessarily know they're dealing with a bot you don't know you're dealing with a uh, something that doesn't really have agency but is just sort of working its way through a narrowly prescribed probability space to
1: be honest it, it it's there doesn't seem to be that much difference between people knowing it's a bot and not knowing it's a bot um when you tell people that they're interacting with a the bot they still manage to behave as if it's human and there was a study done in the netherlands a couple of years ago and they had a robot which they put into um sheltered accommodation with older people and these were people th- there was no i don't think there was any um dementia or anything like that which just people who were elderly and living in, in accommodation and they, they gave them this robot, and they said, this is a robot. It doesn't have any thoughts of its own. It's just a machine. And the people were like, yeah, that's fine. Okay, we understand that. But by the end of the, the time in the nursing home, they were showing it pictures of their grandchildren, even though they knew perfectly well that, that this was a machine. And you see this a lot. I mean, one of the the whole plot of ex machina focuses around you know this is a machine this is a a turing test where you know it's a machine can you accept it and that's a really the 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 treating like human um knowing it's human knowing knowing it's not human there doesn't seem to be um a big gulf there it sort of merges into this acceptance that people get very attached without having to know it's human or not human
0: Right. I mean, and, and in a sense, we we see that with other types of uh, of non-human intelligence. So people get very attached uh, to their to their dogs. They get right. very attached to their pets. I mean, these are things that wouldn't pass a Turing test under any circumstances.
1: Right. And the Turing test is not. I mean, the Turing test is not a great te- I mean, oh god, no Let's disrespect. No disrespect in. to Turing because and we're he's in his amazing. Old room. Right. <laughs> The Turing, Turing was fantastic. Um, the the Turing test is is a test of machine intelligence in terms of responsiveness. Mm-hmm. It's not a test of understanding. It's not a test of consciousness or anything like that. It's a very limited test. But he says that himself in in his paper and. Uh, the idea being that you you can convince someone. It's not about whether it's true or not. It's about whether or not you convince convince someone. And actually, I mean, so last year t- 2014, um, they said that the Turing test was passed. The University of Reading. Um, one of the tests was, oh, the Turing test has now been passed. We've convinced people. It was it was very much gaming the system. They said, oh, it's been passed, but the. The bot they used was was supposed to be a thirteen year old Russian boy, so the language was not expected to be of any sophistication and lots of the stuff so it was it was completely gaming the system but the Turing test is is more of a thought experiment mm-hmm. than it is of an actual practical test we don't We don't have really good practical tests for this kind of thing. we really yeah. don't, and i'm not sure we particularly need them at least from the objective point of view i think I think we can get away with a very subjective approach, which is what are our responses to them. And that's a different, that's a different thing altogether. That's not measuring the intelligence or the uh, human aspects of a machine. It's, it's measuring our responses to them, which the Turing test does in a way, but it, Turing test is more of kind of fooling the human rather than the human forming a bond.
0: But then when we, what we have started to observe is we've started to observe people build these bonds and we're mm. putting technology into homes. I think, uh, w- William, you worked on... Alexa, and you, there was a, uh, a data point about the number of people who had proposed to Alexa. <laughs> what,
1: was that, what was that number? The number I was. You just said 250.
0: So, 250,000 people had proposed Why to Alexa. Why does that not surprise me? A, Alexa. <laughs> right, but let's. But be, beyond them not being surprised, what, what what do you think is going on in the in that relationship, that interaction that has us talking to a cylinder <laughs> on our kitchen right. surface, saying? <laughs> Will you marry me?
1: Well, one of the, big, the, one of the big goals is to be able to develop machines that we can, we can talk to in natural language. And so things like Alexa, things like Echo and Cortana and Siri are incredible. I mean, that's just amazing that we can take natural language, talk to a machine, and it can respond to us. Okay, those responses have limitations, but it's such a natural way of interacting because that's how we interact with other humans. And I think that's the key. It's not about how much intelligence these machines have themselves, it's about how responsive they seem to us. And so, yeah, if you have a, a um, an Amazon Echo, if you have Alexa, who seems to be conversing with you and answering all your questions, it's not that far-fetched to, to you know, okay, maybe a hundred thousand of those are people just jesting. jesting. Well, actually, yeah. probably most of them. But um, this this kind of interaction is very normal mm-hmm. when you start chatting to someone. It's a very natural way of communicating, and it's something that has been long been the goal of human computer interaction that natural language thing.
0: Great, I could see some first questions coming in. Oh, There's Catalina
1: freak for accurate data um so i'd like to ask william how many um of those proposals were actually sincere <laughs> considering that natural language <laughs> processing is so dumb right now that it doesn't really get my commands oh
2: you, you can certainly tell when you have asked to marry uh and the, yes, and, and there, a there a is a response sorry it's it's a job. well yes. that requires mind reading so <laughs> that that isn't something that can come from the from the ai uh So yes, I suspect a lot of those people uh, were testing the thing out or having fun, and there's all sorts of other things that they say, that human beings say to agents like that, including I'm limited to what I can say about Amazon, but I know from my, from the startup era before Amazon, for example, that you know graphic sexual stuff is also very common, yeah. um, and you know all sorts of stuff to do with human relationships and love and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, so that's the one question I can't answer is is, is what was in the customer's head when they were asking, it, what their intention was, because that that clearly doesn't come from the speech. You know, the like the speech, can, is, yeah, the speech yeah. the, but they definitely that question definitely gets asked very large m- amounts of time. I just wanted to pick
1: on that because it's really interesting. It's about um, people really pushing it and pushing the boundaries and and doing the sort of graphical sexual interaction. Um, And it's one of the concerns about things like sex robots or sex technology that develops in that way is that it is objectification, particularly of women, um, and that it's problematic and it will lead to... Social problems in that the, that it's much more, it would seem much more acceptable to be abusive or sexually abusive to to machines. Therefore, that might translate into society in general. Um, right. So
0: there's there's a transference argument, right. which is that you you normalise the, uh-huh. the a, a, abuse and then you take it out. And then there's the uh, the absorption argument, which is there that. Is. You, you take up the capacity of the abuse on something that's not right, that is like a proxy. Yeah, right. exactly.
1: And and you see this around a lot of the the concerns around creating robots that are, for example, childlike, and you see people saying, well, you know. Uh, so we did a survey, we, we did a Vox Pop, and we did a survey at a at a, at a big festival, and um, we got people to fill in questionnaires, and we said, you know, um, would you have sex with a robot, all this sort of stuff. But one of the questions was, you know, do you think it's, um, what, what would happen if they, if they made a, a robot that was in a child form? Um, there was a split, there were people saying, this is horrific, this shouldn't be allowed, and there were other people saying, well, it might actually stop child abuse and this is the, th- the problem there are two forms of arguments here one is that the gateway hypothesis that it will lead to escalation of abuse in real life the other being that it's a proxy and it could reduce it um i've talked to um psychologists and i've heard opinions from both sides so uh, one psychologist who works with sex offenders who said you absolutely should not let anyone near that kind of outlet it's just not good and others saying well this could be used for therapy and we know that virtual reality has been used for therapy with sex offenders the University of Montreal ran a study where they um They treated sex offenders and after rehabilitation, they put them into a virtual environment um, and put up in stimuli that would cause arousal and they measured arousal in a virtual environment rather than putting people out in the real world to do that um, to check whether or not the treatment had worked. So there are aspects where this could be very positively therapeutic, but it's very, it needs a lot more research.
0: So so I've got tons of questions (laughs) and I'm really uh, intrigued in getting questions from uh, our participants so maybe uh, Liam would you like to I, I, I,
3: out? I, yeah, Hi. out I thought that was really interesting what you had to say I tweeted earlier on question to audience is it okay to have sex with a robot and someone who responded is a doctor in Toronto says from the gynae department not hospital today suggests these are all sold in supermarkets P.S. I'm coming back as a man <laughs> and uh, that kind of goes to the question I was going to ask is that A lot of the stuff about robots is not talking about robots. It's talking about something else, isn't it? A friend of mine knowing I was coming here today who visits her mother who's got Alzheimer's, um, who's just not there anymore and asks the same question over and over again. And my friend goes and sits there and just gets really upset and said, will you ask this doctor who's talking about artificial intelligence, would it be okay to send a robot that looked like her that was just able to sit there all day going, yes, mum, great question, for the 75,000th time. Yeah. And that's not really about robots out of intelligence. It's about robots. human relationships, isn't it? And
1: I actually think that it's a good thing. And there are the, again, the community is split over whether or not that's a positive thing. I think it's a good thing. Um, one of the arguments against that is that why are we replacing human care with robots? That seems, you know, that seems like it's letting down elderly people in our community, I disagree I've um, my grandmother who, who died recently was had dementia and was living on her own at home she didn't want to leave her home, it was very very important to her that she stayed in her home but it meant carers coming in every day and she was alone and she was vulnerable and those carers could only come in for a couple of hours and she had no one to help her the rest of the time if I had been able to provide her with some kind of artificial assistant that could look after her, knowing how much she wanted to be in her own environment and how distressing it would be for her out of that, I would absolutely be behind that but there are other people who will argue that that is removing the personal touch and the human touch I, I, I'm pro it <laughs> we've got a question from Anne
4: Thanks. Um, yes really interesting and actually don't you think then that um, robots should be regulated in a way they could be essentially seen as drugs or as therapeutics and obviously they can do good but they could do harm as well what are your thoughts on that
1: um, I think that's why we need to be thinking about this now. There's a a global community of people working in ethics of AI. Um, There was a conference in NYU in October that I went to, and we were talking about um, ethics of AI from a number of different angles. So we had um, Nick Bostrom talking about the threat from superintelligence. We had um, Peter Zara talking about um, autonomous weapons. We had talks on self-driving cars, Mm -hmm. We all talked about the trolley problem and dismissed it. Um, <laughs> um, and, and I was talking there about, about um, sex and therapeutic robots. And I think that is something that is very much under debate in that um, the technology, so much in its infancy, we don't know where it's going to go. And this big gap between policy and law and what's actually happening with technology. In my research group, um, we have a medical ethics lawyer who's involved and who's very interested in how this fits in under in a variety of ways not not just data protection in terms of property in terms of autonomy all sorts of things. I
0: think to to Anne's point that there is a really interesting observation there which is that we already have existing uh, regulatory frameworks and Mm. approval frameworks for therapeutics uh, and we do that for 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 drugs and we also know that you know opioids can be used for Uh, pain relief they can also be used to subdue entire uh, populations in uh, the eastern seaboard of the united states you know so you can use them in 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 both directions and you can put regulation in in place i think there's a really intriguing idea in there where the framework in some sense already Mm. already exists Uh, and and what i think is interesting about about robots that work in 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 the form of care is that the uncanny valley seems to be less of a problem because the awareness of someone with 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 uh you know dementia is not necessarily as strong as a sort of fully capable person and
1: i would also say it doesn't need to be going down (coughs) the line of of realistic android gynoid robots i think people are more responsive to the humanoid ones which aren't which have human features but are not human representative mm-hmm. and we can still bond with those very very strongly so i would be saying that that might be the way we go but i agree there could be we could have medical grade robots with sort you of know, fda approval river i think that's that's not far-fetched
0: i'm very interested in um in what your thoughts are on how quickly kind of norms and social taboos will catch up and i say this because uh, i never thought i would go to an event that united my my wife's interest, but she studies uh, sex with statues in ancient Greece. Oh my and, God! I
1: want to talk to your wife. <laughs> uh, and
0: and one of the I was texting her in the middle of this because I was please, like, please I wish I'd, I wish touch. she'd come. Um, <laughs> but one thing that she was saying by text is that in in ancient Greece, sex with statues is associated with suicide and humiliation oh and wow. divine punishment because eventually it catches catches up with you and and, and you kill yourself. Um, is- now. It's taken two and a half thousand years, but I'd be interested to know how quickly do you think uh, you won't have to feel at the very least social humiliation at the worst kind of suicide? Okay, and to, to, two robots. things
1: with like that. And one is that I work with a classicist, actually, on on sort of the history and origins of sex robots and artificial lovers and things like that. And it, it goes right back to uh, Pygmalion's quite a late story in terms of this. Actually, Laudamere is one of the earliest ones where... She was um, uh, a Greek woman whose husband was, she newly married and her husband was the first person to fall at the Battle of Troy. And the Greek gods, gave him back to her for three hours and it wasn't long enough so he went back to the underworld she was three, three hours three hours I know there's great gods great gods are really fickle they were wed, um, and, um, and uh, so she built a bronze version of her husband and took it to bed with her and interacted with it um, and was was caught interacting with it and it was uh, caused all sorts of problems um, but I found that really interesting um, as an origin story of, of, of this kind of thing but also yes in terms of how things progress and are accepted. We've seen, so there's the National Survey for Sexual um, Behaviour, Natsal, um, it's done every ten years, where people are um, uh, give their opinions on a wide variety, or uh, give their um, responses on a wide variety of sexual questions about um, sexuality, about sexual preferences, about um, sexual behaviour, all sorts of things. And so it happens every ten years, and there's been a marked rise, a, a big difference from the advent of the World Wide Web. And since then, people have become much, much more open about what they talk about and much, much more diverse in what they talk about. So before that, they were keeping things very close. And I think this is a wonderful thing because those communities are out there and people are finding others. There's no longer this isolation in terms of sexual preference and sexual behaviour. And so I think... That we are in a time where people are way more open than they've ever been about mm-hmm. that, and that's a really positive thing. So I, I think the big gulf at the moment is when you say sex robots, people think of sci-fi, and actually you're trying to say it's not. It's just an extension of the sex toys that a lot of people already own, and they you know, and it's, it's, it's clearly a big industry. Um, so yeah, I I think it's it's a matter of. Kind of getting people into the headset that this is not some alien thing where we we have a very sci-fi future. It's 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 happening all the time, and AI is pretty much ubiquitous in our lives now, even if we don't realize it. Lydia had a question, I
4: think. Um, I had a gender question to piggyback on your uh, comments. So I, I think that when in terms of women and pleasure, there's a lot of sex toys, a huge range to choose from. But when we look at the things that you were talking about, VR porn and the, the life-size dolls with AI, it's geared towards pleasure of men.
1: Yes, it's awful.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wonder now, so I, first of all, I was one of the people who raised their hands that said, yeah, I think everything is fine. And I, I, I really value the health benefits of it. However, I want to get your perspective on what does that mean for women in the future and their human interaction with men and men fulfilling their needs. If this will become, it will become mainstream. It will be like everybody owns one at their home. But if people are used to using that and not realizing consent and uh, foreplay and how a woman is pleasured, then women will suffer. So. What are your thoughts on that?
1: So this is one of the reasons why I want to get involved in development of sex technology is to try and make it more equal and more diverse because it's totally skewed towards men at the minute completely, and yet we're seeing really good signs, positive signs, that the sex tech industry is is becoming um, much more female friendly, to the point where a lot of the startups um, that we see making innovative new sex toys are actually founded by women. Um, and certainly with our sex tech hackathon, we had a deliberate, um, uh, we, we had a deliberate 50-50 gender balance going on because we, we absolutely wanted to be there equal. There are only two genders. Oh, God, don't start me on genders. Please, Sorry. please, just please. Just no, OK, well, I apologise. I will, I I will uh, <laughs> let
0: you off on that one, uh, Kate. But, but right. go um yeah.
1: no one quote me on that on Twitter. I don't want to get into some kind <laughs> of um, feminist internecine war. Um, can we just... <laughs> OK, um, all genders. And... Um, so we 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 basically opened it up to everyone does that work okay fine um (laughs) so i think the 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 issue um there's a there for example in london there are a lot of women involved in sex tech startups um i'm part of a sort of sex tech collective that get together and share ideas and talk about stuff and it's really really positive to see that um but we are fighting against some really entrenched views and Mm. The porn industry is perpetuating that and people who try to go against that run into all kinds of problems. Um, it's difficult. There's one There's one company that kind of runs all the different porn sites online, MindGeek, and they are in a very powerful position. Um, if they decide to get involved, well, they're already involved in VR porn, if they decide to get involved in extending that into sex robots, then it's definitely going down a very meal or interview porn is known to be the technological driver of many things it's the reason we have streaming video online it's the reason we have credit card transactions online the money and research that they can put behind that is incredible but we need to go in and say that's not enough that we need to do this as well for women
0: so i, I mean i want to come to something that, that lydia just just raised there uh which is which is this question about um the the the, the gender question. Um, <coughs> Uh, there is a question about what happens in a uh, in in the world of um, real human connection, right? Are you actually constructing intimacy? And one argument, when we think about technological unemployment, is uh, is, um, is is the artisanal cheese question, which is that we don't. The artisanal cheese may not be as good as the real as cheese made out of a machine, but because it's got that human touch, we will buy it. And when technology technological unemployment strikes the handmade and the craft and the artisanal will be uh, the thing that we will value. So that's one of the arguments about perhaps as we head into technological unemployment caused by automation in lots of other sectors, that there will be a particular sector that will end up being a a growing sector, which will be in companionship and intimacy, because even if the physical sensations are (coughs) you know not as strong the lack of emotional connection will 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 not be so good with a with a robot so there's a philosopher in um in ireland called john Danaher who sort of su- suggests that this is a, a a a direction that in fact as we as we play out a world of technological unemployment even if we have great robots there will be a role for you know people of all genders to to form human attachments, and I was thinking a little bit about what are the growth areas over the last five or six years in in jobs, and data scientists have tremendously grown in their number. There's a sort of five-fold increase in the U.S. in the number of data scientists since 2014 and a six-fold increase in in India, Um, but another industry that has grown very quickly is a yoga teacher, 18 percent. Uh, compounded annual growth uh, for a seven-year period from 2008. Um, and, and that's not, you know, the, the point there being that that it's intriguing that, on the one hand, this kind of computational reductive mathematical job has grown, and on the other hand, this job that is very, very empathetic and intimate And physical and person to person has also grown very, very strongly. So when we think about, as I said, you know, even looking at maybe ten or fifteen years, and we think about technological unemployment, you might think that one area that will still matter a great deal will be that human intimacy and that that human uh, connection. I was uh, thinking of coming back, talking about love tech uh, as opposed to sex tech, and. um the quest or what you were talking about in relation to that kind of gaming of the Turing test. Uh, And it occurred to me, well, that I guess the emotional connection perhaps may also be gained uh, as an interim stage. And if that's so, you know, how will will this AI game us
3: to make it love it? Um,
1: Okay, so from a from a technical perspective of how it will game us um there's a branch of human computer interaction called effective computing and it's where um we can read people's biofeedback the computer can read your biofeedback and then respond to it so for example um it can take your heart rate it can take your galvanic skin response it can take your muscle movement and it can deduct your emotional state and it can respond to that emotional state and that's that's here and now, that's perfectly possible. And anyone wearing a Fitbit, you know, that's tracking your heart rate or, you know, your, your movement or anything like that. Um, but there's plenty of technology that can read how we are responding physically um, and interpret an emotional state and respond to that. And I think that's a very easy way for it to game it is that it looks at our emotional state via our physical responses, via our autonomic system, and then feeds it back to us. Yep.
3: Rather like looking at the future of this. So imagine you had BCI. Do you think, is it really necessary to have sex bots?
0: So brain-computer interfaces, yeah, yeah, yeah. do you need sex
1: Thank bots? You. So, so so straight into the brain. I mean, so that's kind of moving into sort of sensory augmentation. Um, which I actually, oh, I've actually got a PhD student working in that, but not related to sex, I must say. Um, it's, it's feasible. I mean, I suppose it's another form of, of interaction where you would need it. I mean... Does it have to be embodied? Probably not. The film *Her*, which creeped me out so much. <laughs> um, the film *Her*, which was where um, um, the main character falls in love with a with a, a voice. Admittedly, it's Scarlett Johansson's voice. Everyone has an image in their head of Scarlett Johansson when they hear Scarlett Johansson's voice. But um, this idea that you can that you can um, bond just on the on the voice level was really interesting so yeah if you could have direct input and stimulation in your brain i mean is it going to be any different from uh, a feeling of euphoria from taking drugs i mean taking take ecstasy and feel loved up or you know perhaps anybody
0: in the stream is going to know what you're talking about i I realize
1: none of you know (laughs) no at all um
0: it, it may not be it may not be that different. Yeah.
1: It may not be that different. It may be that that's enough in the sort of chemical pathways of the brain. Because I, I, I'm kind of going with fundamentally um, I'm in a, from a very sort of pragmatic point of view. I suppose it's really difficult because we we get into the whole AI mind body Cartesian dualism nonsense and um, you know what, what does it mean to, to think and all that stuff but yeah I mean I, I see this, this reaction this amazing chemical reaction from love and from sex that if you can bypass the actual interaction of it and go straight to the love and the sex sure I mean Why
0: sounds
1: not? good sounds good.
0: Giles had a question I think uh, Yeah, when do you think Sony are going to make a robotic dog you can have sex with <laughs> obviously well, I'm I, asking for a friend right okay, um, yeah. <laughs>
1: You probably already can with the iBo. I mean, I have, I, I don't, I
0: actually did t- <laughs> yeah.
1: okay. right good good, uh, good. <laughs> okay well actually I actually want to pick up because um, what, what do we actually one of the questions is what do we actually mean by sex and um, we had to actually define that at one of the talks I was doing which was people people were assuming that, that sex meant there was some kind of penetrative to orgasm sex and it doesn't necessarily mean that and that's a very narrow view of what actually is involved in sex and so I think um, you may ha- everyone will have their own views of what constitutes sex um, Bill Clinton certainly has his own views of what constitutes sex. Um, but I imagine you could get up close and personal with a Sony eyeball already.
0: The standout issue for me so far that's resonated with me the most is, is a gender thing again, actually. So I'm father of two boys, got an Alexa at home. Alexa only responds to me when I am very direct, terse, yeah. instructive. And so it just strikes me, like everything you've i came here thinking about. Sex with robot women and all of the assistants <laughs> all of the assistants are called female names. It just strikes me that and we are living in the times we 're living in Trump, etc, gamergate, and I feel like we are going to map the challenges and issues and power structures we 've got today and perhaps even amplify them and that is really scary
1: i completely agree with you uh um, this is something that really worries me as I, I i've i've had so many horrible encounters over the years um working in tech and i see it perpetuated and i see i mean yeah i know exactly what you mean, i mean about the direct thing i remember my mom telling alexa right shut up alexa because she was getting pissed off and alexa going okay i will shut up or whatever you know the, the kind of very passive response to that and I do think it's problematic, and I do think it's reflective of the, the environment in which tech is created, and I, don't ha- I wish I had an answer to it, and all I can think of is I'm, I, I'm very involved with a lot of national initiatives to get more women into, into STEM. We've been trying for years. There's still a declining number of women involved in computer science. It's actually dropping. It's something like 16.5% of women working in tech these days, and the numbers are going down. It's really quite worrying. Um, and we are desperately trying to, to reframe that, but I'm really not sure how we go about that.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm gonna ask one last comment from William uh, so here. So.
2: It's nothing to do with passive gender stereotypes okay. whatsoever. It's, it's like, you know, there's no dialogue, there's no, you can't, you know, what, what, what's the alternative? response to You get
1: a bit shorty with them <laughs> <laughs> to well, go yeah.
0: I want to say thank you to Kate we've got <laughs> a few you. other people who are going to speak but thank you very much Well thanks for listening to the podcast of that uh, fantastic event we held back in February. Remember, you can keep in touch with us by following us on Twitter at Exponential View, on Instagram at Exponential View, or signing up to our newsletter. The details are available at www.exponentialview.co. Thanks again. Bye-bye.